call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 42 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where two friends watch a film decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched Stanley Kubrick's 1957 World War I film, Paths of Glory. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Please follow Call It Friend, or podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes, or any or all of the above. Please send any questions or recommendations to call it friend of podcast at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. What have you been watching? I have watched nothing this week. Uh, I watched, I guess I watched the fourth episode of Loki, but as I said in the last episodes, I'm not going to talk about that until Loki is finished. Although it was a great episode of Loki, I think. I'm just going to hold fire on that. Yes, it was. Um, You can hold fire on it, but I have been going full hyperbole to anybody who listen. I think it's the best thing the MCU has done, genuinely. And uh, I suddenly realized that it's because it ties much more in with the way those characters were originally told, which is episodically, and you can explore the small nuances of characters through little adventures. And it made me realize that there's probably not a story that's been told in the MCU that wouldn't benefit from being rewritten into that format. And I genuinely believe that. But anyway. Yeah, I think it's, I feel like it's the most interesting. I still, yeah, I mean, this is why I kind of want to wait and see where it goes. I want to see what the ending is. I think it's, it is great. I really mm. enjoy watching it, but, but I'd like to see what the where, where it all ends up before having any, drawing any final conclusions about it. But yeah, I really enjoy watching it, and I like the characters. Yeah, and like, I still pay attention to mainstream review media, and everybody's having a fucking fit about how the fact that he's bisexual. But, I mean, you're just missing the bigger picture that it's just great storytelling. Um, keeping you guessing and interested. And it's like Doctor Who on a high budget. I mean, it's it's really, really good. Really engaging. I'm very happy with it now, I have to say. You've been watching nothing else, so it's just all me talking my, my what I've been watching this week. Have you watched a lot of things? Precisely four mo- no, three movies, not including Paths of Glory, and one miniseries. Okay, let's hear it. All right, well, oh yeah, and I have a story as well. I have a story. So, um, <laughs> I wrote a short story. Day, I, have a, I have a novella. No, the, day a- the day after we recorded last week, uh, I was supposed to be going to see A Quiet Place Part 2. So, I went to A Quiet Place Part 2. And I appear quite sophisticated in movie screenings these days, and usually, because I will arrive and not be with the hoi polloi, I'll go on my own, and uh, I'll bring a book. So I'm there, looking all intelligent, reading a book. This guy ambles in beside me, not beside me, he he observes the distance, he respects it, one seat away, and he stinks of booze. I'm like, this guy's tanked. Now, to start off, I never quite... 
God, despite the fact having been an enthusiastic boozer in my time, I never really did get the buzz of getting getting blitzed in the cinema. Why would you do that there? I do, I like let not out even out of a respect for a cinema. Just uh, I mean, is there are there not better places to get blitzed? And I don't mean having a casual beer in the cinema. I mean, this is what I mean. So this, <laughs> I've actually never seen this before. This guy. Uh, opened up his large Coke, took a giant mouthful of a slurp, and then took a bottle of vodka out of his bag and poured it into the thing. Poured it into the giant cup. So I'm there going, oh boy, all right, cool, here we go, whatever. Fifteen minutes into the movie, what happens? He pisses himself? He vomits. Oh, Jesus. Which uh, cinema was this? Phenomena. I was... The first one to leave, I suppose, because I was beside him, but I'm sure other people did too. I was wearing flip-flops, um, and I was two seats away from him, so I was not happy. The guy just told me, look, because he knows me I, as well. I mean, I go there a lot. He just said, look, come back another time. It's okay. Uh, and I just left, and I was disgusted. <laughs> and I went back home and watched uh, The First Quiet Place, which, I mean... That movie's just fantastic, to be honest. This, this is where we'll start. That movie is just brilliant. It's the, and it's no wonder um, it's actually appropriate that the second part would be one of uh, many people's first trip to the cinema in a long time because the first one just... The first one is a great exemplar of why it's better to watch films in the cinema. Because, yeah, the world building is, like, full of holes, like, fucking, I don't know... Wh- where are the army in all this? Is that answered in the second one? You've seen the second one. Where are the army in all this? Uh, not really. Uh, or uh, what about farting? They don't really delve into bodily functions that much. You see, there you go. But then when you're watching it, none of that really matters at all. Because, Like, for example, okay, spoilers for the first Quiet Place. But when you... Kill a kid in your opening 10 minutes. You raise oh, the yeah. stakes. Forgot about that. Above, above the fucking roof is where they're at. And it, I, then after that, when the only characters that remain that you're supposed to care about are two children, a heavily pregnant woman, and a father, like, nobody feels safe when you're watching it. You do, like, you're just zoned the fuck in. And also, I don't know, do you remember this from the first one? But there's a very carefully placed nail on the stairs. Do you remember this? Yes, it's also in the second one. The same nail! Spoilers. The same nail. The same location. Oh, my God. Like, that in the first one is... I mean, it's Chekhov's nail, really. If you're going to include a nail in your first act, it's going to be used in your third. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, So, I just even watching that at home, I got pure enthused. I got really into it. I also, maybe as a preempt to this week's category i watched the sweet smell of success which have you seen that before what's that the name's familiar but i can't place it it's um it's by a scottish dude actually well directed and co-written the script a guy called alexander mckendrick he uh, directed the lady killers the original lady killers and then moved over to america and retired early etc but um basically it's about a press agent in new york pulling favors to get celebrities into the column of a columnist called J.J. Hedsecker, played by Burt Lancaster. The press agent is played by Tony Curtis. 
And it is just the nastiest bunch of people you've seen. The script is so good, it's shot really well, but even by the end, you're just, like the, the people in it are so evil. I thought about it, like I, I, after watching it, I um, so Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, actually, they both played against type for the movie. Uh, they would have been idol types, like heartthrobs, but they, like, Curtis's character is just a weasel of the highest order, but Burt Lancaster's character is pure evil. He's like, he'll chill you to your bones. And like, I looked up immediately afterwards, best screen villains of all time. And up at the top are all Darth Vader and Hannibal Lecter. And uh, Norman Bates was up there in the list I saw. And uh, Burt Lancaster down at 33. Now, Burt Lancaster is more chilling than any of the people in the top 10 put together in this film. But I guess when people are talking about screen villains, normally they're talking about somebody that... For some reason, you root for them during some point in the story. But, wow, like in Sweet Smell of Success, Burt Lancaster just chills the film to its bones. He's a real, real piece of work. So I really enjoyed that. I wrote a big, fat, long article for it that I've added to my portfolio for my current CV to try and get writing jobs. There you go. And I also, yesterday evening, watched The Hateful Eight. When's the last time you watched The Hateful Eight? In the cinema that first time when were we were there together. Yeah, me Did we too. Discuss that. Yeah, I don't think so. No, no. But um, I watched the yeah. the roadshow version at the cinema. You your vomit cinema phenomena. <laughs> the vomit cinema, exactly. I'm gonna. Yeah, I would go on the record to say I think it's probably Quentin Tarantino's worst movie. Ooh, that's interesting. I remember enjoying it, although obviously it's quite long. It's still enjoyable. Don't get me wrong, it's still enjoyable. Did you listen to him on Rogan this week? No, I didn't. Well, he goes on that there are two of his films that he uh, had always planned to turn into plays. One of them is Reservoir Dogs, the other one is Hateful Eight. Watching Hateful Eight the second time particularly, it became apparent to me is like that this is a play, really. And it's also, it could be pared down very easily. Not to say it isn't entertaining. Not to say it isn't entertaining. I suppose the reason I'm saying it's, for me, his worst film is because the one that people normally throw under the bus is... Well, let's see. Which one would you throw under the bus? filmography. Really? Not personally, but I feel like that for a long time, that was one that a lot of people were like, eh, it was mid-tier. Uh, I feel okay. like in personally, later years, though, for people you. were a bit more positive about it. I'm not a huge fan of the Kill Bills, personally. It's not, it's not my type okay. of thing. Okay, fair enough. Uh, why? What were the you going to say? The normal one that people... Maybe, I, maybe well, I'm also forgetting people, something. There's a good chance of that. The normal one people throw under the bus is Death Proof, which I actually really enjoy. I think Death Proof to is, be honest, a, is a fun haven't, film. To be honest, haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even consider that I mean, a film. <laughs> just, just fuck off and die, Andy. Why don't you? No, uh, no, no, no. Um, It's good. I really enjoy Death Proof, but... I think the reason people take something from it is because it's normally associated with that Robert Rodriguez film, uh, Planet Terror. Planet Terror. Yeah, because it was that grindhouse double bill. Yeah, yeah, they did that grindhouse thing, exactly. What an odd move in cinema history. I mean, it'll be like, I imagine most people know nothing about it, but you and I speak to each other and we know exactly what it is. But uh, yeah, the one other thing, even even when I saw the advertising for that, even like just the concept, I realized this is not for me. It's not for me. That's why I haven't watched it. Too pastiche. 
Yeah, I mean, does it have a narrator? I could be swung around if it's got a narrator. Deathproof. I think Deathproof actually does have a narrator. Is there any time travel? There is no time travel, but there is time jumping. Oh, okay. And there is an excellent car chase. Really good car chase. Um, Mm. I'd recommend that one. I really enjoy that. I think you would too, to be honest. But anyway, all of those movies were existing in the shadow of a miniseries I watched called Time, written and directed by Jimmy McGovern, which anybody can find on BBC iPlayer or probably their local blockbuster. When you think of prison fiction, what do you think of? Oz. Oz, but even in Oz, Oz was like a special division of the prison, wasn't it? Well, like the evil Nazi rape system. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly, something like that. I don't know, because I watched Oz as well, but for some reason, for I well, I, I know the reason. So, Time is Jimmy McGovern, famous for writing and creating Cracker. It's his prison miniseries. It's a three-parter starring Sean Bean and uh, Stephen Graham. Stephen Graham is a prison guard. Sean Bean is a teacher committed for manslaughter by way of drunk driving. And I think it's just that Sean Bean plays your everyman so well that he's your way in that prison becomes genuinely terrifying. There's a moment... Yeah, this sounds up by street. Oh, my God. There's a moment near the end of the first episode where you just know what is going to happen. You know it is. You know it's coming. Uh, And it's not even that bad. Like, there's worse violence to come in the thing, but it's just the fact that the way they shoot a certain scene with him on the phone, you know what's coming that I legitimately had to pause the show because I was just like, just fucking do it already. I can't. But like at the same time, you're in with the characters. You're so there with them. Stephen Graham is just a phenomenal actor. Sean Bean is too. There's a Scouse guy who's a bully in it who just, like, he's perfect. He's so good. I really, really highly recommend this show. You would love it. Check it out. fucking kill you. Like that, man. Yeah, yeah, really. Your cat's max, uh... mate. That's nice. Is there any uh, prison rape? No. And I actually feel they did a good trick by not having prison rape because I bet everybody was waiting for it. Me included the whole way through. Right. That's what happened. Oh, spoilers. Damn it. Spoilers. No rape. No, that's fine. Well, I'll still watch it. Even after that, I'll still watch it. But anyway, that is what I've been watching. What did you think of Pats of Glory? Now, this... Was my first time watching it, obviously. I selected it. How many mm. times had you seen it before? This would probably be the fourth, I think. I've seen it Jesus. a few times. I saw it as a, I saw it as a young guy. I saw it as a, a young guy not knowing anything. Then I saw it as a, a Kubrick like enthusiast. Then I'm pretty sure I watched it when the Kubrick exhibition was in Barcelona. And uh, now I've watched it again. And every time, it's me who changes, not the film. Well, yeah. I mean, I will say I, I probably enjoyed it less this time around. Oh, no. Which I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out why, but uh, yeah. Four times is a lot. I thought, uh, like, genuinely, I had no idea what Paths of Glory was actually about. I knew it was a First World War film, but I had no idea that it was actually First World War <laughs> film that has the trenches and... An amazing battlefield scene that I'm sure we'll talk about. And then was a courtroom drama. I just had no idea about any of that. Okay, so it sounds like you enjoyed it immensely. 
I did. I really enjoyed it. It's again, it's like if anyone's listened way back from the start in episode two, I'd pretty much said early on, I don't like black and white films. And The Killing was the first film, the first black and white film that we watched. And again, yeah, I really enjoyed that. It's Stanley Kubrick, obviously. I thought it was great. We watched Rafifi as well. That was another film that really surprised me. It felt really modern. And watching this, I had exactly the same feeling. I felt this seems, there are elements of this that just feel extremely modern. And then it's clear you can see Kubrick's influence on later filmmakers from that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And actually, that like this is <laughs> one of the things I would have enjoyed that simultaneously decreased my enjoyment of it this time around is because I could see the young man in him more this time around instead of just being completely blown away by it. The like, I mean, the way he used the camera is, um, I mean, it, like it's no secret, but it, like it's interesting here again in in every sense, everywhere he does. And the battlefield scene we'll talk about more again. But one thing that was uh, fascinating to me this time around was the way he casts a movie is bizarre. Fucking bizarre. I'm sure we'll get around to talking about Timothy Carey again. I went on a big Timothy Carey deep dive this time and I watched some YouTube videos and bits and pieces and I'll put those in the show notes. Oh, really? On, okay. Yeah, it's Great. Okay. Fun. Uh, you fun you can be my educator on this term. But you sent me earlier today David Simon's introduction to the original book, right. which was a fascinating read. And I'm right. So do you have something on you to like summarize that or should I just go ahead? You go ahead. Okay. So David Simon in like more or less without, without egotistically mentioning his own works, basically says that uh, the author of the original book, whose name escapes me right this second, and I don't have it written down, Andy, can you help me? Humphrey Cobb. Humphrey Cobb was getting at exactly what he was trying to get with The Wire, although many, many years ago. Um, And I have heard David Simon give the same speech uh, more directly about The Wire as opposed to Humphrey Cobb's original book, Pets of Glory, which is that The Wire was about examining the process of human lives becoming worth less not the one word worth less over time valued less by society and that the film had first inspired him and then later the the book when he went back and read it he refers to in his introduction that stanley kubrick would have read it when he was 13 or 14 and he also refers to him dis- deciding on kirk douglas's character whose name escapes me right this second, and I don't have written down, but I'm sure you do. Colonel Dax. Colonel Dax, that's it, Dax Wax, focalizing the entire thing as a moral center. And it's just very, like, it's almost like a good guide towards reading the film, because taken objectively, this film, I mean, it's not quite didactic. It is didactic in its general anti-war message, but it's more of a, I don't know, it's more of a sophisticated dissection of war than just being an anti-war movie. There's a quote from Stanley Kubrick where he talks about criminals and soldiers as kind of ideal characters for storytelling because they're in a situation where their character is revealed because obviously the, the circumstances that they operate with within are so extreme. They kind of like reveals the truth of, of their character. 
and I guess that's one element that he's uh, that he's he's looking at in this film. I mean, of course, this is not his only war film. I mean, similarly in Full Metal Jacket, he's not a fan of war, man. Yeah, um, yeah. Only afterwards it uh, it struck me what a, a good pairing with this uh, Full Metal Jacket would um, make. That's not a film a, not I've just seen under the like four or five times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've seen it a lot. Like we can, like I'm not even talking about in terms of the old rules of this podcast. I'm just talking generally because, I mean, for example, yeah. like in between World War One and the Vietnam War, militaries changed in is, is such a like the project of nationalism basically failed after World War One. Just general nationalism kind of failed. And in the areas where it persevered, you had fascism born, and then everybody else had to rejig their nationalism. And then after that, it definitely failed. So something else was needed to spur military men on. Like, they didn't have patriotism to draw on. So then, consequently, you get Full Metal Jacket, which is much more about, rather than the fallacy of patriotism, it's much more so about the process of turning men into machines so that you don't need the fucking flag. You just need the just murderous cynicism, you know? So, I mean, I, I like, I do think those are, these, these two films are, are at two very interesting ends of Kubrick's anti-war spectrum. I've never seen fear and desire, but I know the story of it. It's much more didactic. These films, their messages are much more subtle. And I mean, they're examined with you know the skills of a great filmmaker can we basically agree that the killing is really stanley kubrick's first film yes totally I, he says that or said that he still says it because there's another alive. one <laughs> you're a friend of the show stanley kubrick yes uh, he's a friend of the big that. big friend of the show i talk to him all the time <laughs> We should have called it Frendo Seances. Yeah, but he did a one between even Fear and Desire and The Killing. There's one more that I haven't seen. I think it's called Killer's Kiss. That's it. It's Killer's Kiss, yes. Those two, that Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, are both one hour long. So they must be good. <laughs> I, I think they sound like seven-star films, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Thanks to now having seen Paths of Glory, we watched The Killing for episode two. We watched Barry Lyndon for an aborted uh, trial episode, which was paired with Hamilton a long time ago. I've now mm. seen all of Stanley Kubrick's films starring at The Killing. You've seen Lolita? Yeah, I've also read the book and I've watched the 1997 version. I know that sounds bad, but it's good. <laughs> You're I have a real the poster Lolita on my wall. Collectivist. <laughs> You're a completist I go to of the, the conventions. Uh, Humbert, Humbert <laughs> saga. Uh, I've also read the book. Uh, it's a good book. I've never watched the film, though. It is, um, it is it a good just, book. I, Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, no, 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 I've read I, like, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I've read yeah, the book. yeah. It's good, isn't um, it? Yeah, you yeah, know, I really enjoyed that book. But I actually, I encountered, when thinking about watching the film, what what actually turned out to be the tagline for the Kubrick uh, film of Lolita, which is, uh, who would ever want to make a film of Lolita? That's what they had on the posters. <laughs> because, it w But anyway, well, well done you. Lolita is the only one I have not seen. No, I've caught up on everything. Would you so, be comfortable giving a, a, a Kubrick top three at the end of this episode? 
Well, I think we've done that before in the second. I mean, now I could give a full list, but I had a question for you instead because on Rotten oh. Tomatoes, Tomatoes, and Metacritic, the same three films are in the same order as the best received critically in terms of okay. like positive reviews, percentage of positive reviews. Oh, and I'm what to do guess you think them. they are? Yeah, why not? Well, number one is uh, certainly 2001, isn't it? It is not. And 2001 wow, does okay. not feature in the top three. What? Okay, I, I'm going to be completely mm-hmm. lost in this. Uh, okay, I'll I'll throw by chance, uh, just as a gamble, I'll throw um, The Killing in at number one. Killing is two. Okay. Paths of Glory, number one. Paths of Glory, three. Hmm. Also anti-war. It's Another one I forgot to, about. Is, is it, it's not Barry Lyndon, is it? No. 60s. 1964. Oh, of course. Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, everybody loves Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. I never really enjoyed that. Kubrick's it's been a long film. time since I yeah. watched it. Yeah. Okay. Here's where I'll arrive on that film. It suffers from that thing that comedies do, that much of the things that are intended to be funny in it are not funny anymore, yet you can still notice people trying to be funny, yeah. so it's a little bit disjointed these yeah. days. It's in, it's enjoyable, it's fine, but I mean, as with most comedy things, uh, most dramatic things that o- include the occasional jokes will be way funny than it. Yeah. Like, for example, okay, well... <laughs> Not so much nowadays. Actually, years ago, I used to think Clockwork Orange was so funny. And I still think it's funny. But these days, like, I remember I, I, I went to the cinema to watch it a few years ago. And I remember I used, I used to have such a great laugh watching Clockwork Orange with my mates. And I don't know, something happened to me in the course of turning 30 where I went, oh, my God, this is profoundly disturbing. This is a really tough watch. Like, I found it really difficult. <laughs> uh, like, genuinely. And I still found parts of it funny, but I found it fucking tough. But no... Like, for example, Barry Lyndon is a hilarious movie. I laughed a lot watching Barry Lyndon. I can't remember. I mean, I remember really, really enjoying Barry Lyndon. I mean, it's obviously beautiful, but I don't remember a lot of the funny bits now. Can you recall yeah, um, an example of one funny part? Oh, yeah. Anything to do with the sun and just like, oh, it's yeah, not even yeah, gags. Yeah, sniveling shit. Remember when he spanks the sun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just... <laughs> <laughs> That's good, actually, that. Or, like, Full Metal Jacket is often hilarious. Oh, yeah, that is funny, though. But I love that's, like, Arlie Ermey shouting The Shining! People. The Shining is often hilarious. The Shining is mm. often really funny. I'm going to do something now that involves an N-word, but I'll just say N-word. It's just shocking how quickly it arrives when Torrance Jack... Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance Jack Nicholson, is talking to the bartender, Jeeves, he calls him... And uh, Jeeves just leans into him and goes, uh, your son is inviting an uh, an intruder to the hotel. Oh, yeah? Yes. An N-word. An N-word? <laughs> an N-word cook? It's just, it's so bizarre. Like, it, it, like it's yeah. hilarious. And actually, do you know what as well? Eyes Wide Shut is often hilarious. I'm going to say it like it's like with Scorsese, uh, like yeah, or you The Sopranos as a Scorsese. TV show in general. It, like it's, it's so often hilarious. Whereas Doctor Strangelove, the big gag that everybody always alludes to is um, there's no fighting in the war room. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just a bit of wordplay. You know what I mean? 
fine, whatever. I mean, it's. I find the uh, the sequence where the guy shoots off on the missile and rides it like a, a bronco oh, rider. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny, just because it's fucking bizarre. It's just mental. But actually, the giant <laughs> sequence that they cut from the film, which was a pie fight in the war room, that to me sounds gas. I would have loved that. That riding the bomb down scene, that's like one of those things that I must have seen it in The Simpsons first, years before actually watching the film. Oh yeah, there's plenty of stuff like that out there with regards to the references where you kind yeah. of go, uh, oh wait, this is from The Simpsons, isn't it? Paths of Glory is a 1957 anti-war film set during World War One, but it's based on a novel of the same name by Humphrey Cobb. Born in Italy to American parents, Cobb served as a teenager with the Canadian Army in the First World War and fought in the Battle of Amiens in August 1918, one of the first major battles involving armoured warfare. And it was also the start mm. of the Hundred Days Offensive, which eventually ended the war in November of the same year. So Cobb saw some shit, basically. But the novel was eventually published in 1935, so it was pre-the Second World War. I mean, yeah, it, particularly in that section of the war, uh, so ugly because they knew what they were gonna. They knew they were gonna end it at that point. Like all the great powers knew exactly what was gonna happen, but the Germans muscled themselves together for one last kind of go at a knockout punch to get better terms than an unconditional surrender. It was so ugly. So yeah, it, not only did he see some action, but he saw some distinctly unnecessary action. Poor old fella. The title, Paths of Glory, is a quotation from Thomas Gray's Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard in 1751. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour, the paths of glory lead but to the grave. Yeah, I've often said so myself. Stanley Kubrick originally read the novel as a teenager, as you said. Later, he purchased the rights from Cobb's widow for $10,000. Kubrick adapted the novel into a screenplay, which was used to get Kirk Douglas on board to star. Douglas then used his star power to bring in $1 million, $1 million funding $1 from United Artists, dollars. a third of which went on Douglas's salary. You mentioned the biggest yeah. change scriptwise from the novel, which was to shift focus to Douglas's character, Colonel Dax, rather than the three condemned men. That's what I had heard. I have not read the book. Me neither, but based on that David Simon foreword and the fact that I love The Wire, I would certainly be willing to read the book if I ever read books. Instead, I just watched the film, so I saw the film. As far as I'm concerned, I've read the book. <laughs> Logiced. <laughs> I'm doing a mad reverse ferret on that soon enough. I've just ordered Quentin Tarantino's novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay, now that's madness. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, I don't know, but I love Tarantino. I'm going to do it. I'll give him a go. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I remember one time years and years ago, uh well, like, I think when I was a kid, I was in my parents' bedroom and I I like both my parents had a ton of books next to their bed, <laughs> and I remember looking at my dad's side of the bed, and he was reading a novelization of uh, the film Philadelphia. <laughs> it just it's always struck me as such a why would you read a novelization of Philadelphia? Novelizations used to be a thing. I've read a few of them. I read the novelization of Predator before I saw the film. I can imagine that if you're like a, a boy, <laughs> if you're a child and you can't get hold of uh, Predator. 
I also no, I read the I also read the novelization of Alien, I believe, actually. Now that I'm thinking of it. And I think I have those two somewhere at home. I read but the anyway, novelization yeah, of one. a Serbian film. It was great. <laughs> you did not. <laughs> it was very fun. <laughs> I remember I, I uh a friend of mine told me about a Serbian film years ago, and then uh, I, w- I was like, uh, friends of mine were telling me about it, how horrible it was. And then I read a review, I think it was the Guardian review of it, and the ending lines of it always stuck with me. And it always said, you do not need to watch a Serbian film. You just think you do. And I was like, oh my God, you're t- totally correct. And I've never watched it. Have you watched it? I, no, no, I have it for the same reason. I don't think it's for me. That and yeah. Grindhouse. They're not for me. I'll stick with Lolita, thanks very much, where it's safe. <laughs> also, Kubrick originally envisioned a happy ending where the three men are saved from execution. The reason for, for that change that Kubrick wanted to make was he believed that would score more box office success. However, Kirk Douglas insisted that the more downbeat ending of the novel be used. Oh, wow, I did not know that. Well, Kirk it must be Douglas true. I said it. Had, <laughs> Kirk Douglas has had his uh, reputation bandied about a little bit on this podcast, but nothing confirmed. Yeah, we have accused him episodes. of rape, but he's yeah, not we've alone. Accused him. I'm sure we've accused other people of that. Well, Robert Downey Jr. did, I think, officially. That's what you said. In terms of the style of the film, Kubrick made the choice to use black and white to really portray the bleakness of the situation, bleaker than other films of the time. The score with Mm. the military drums creates tension. The composer, Gerald Freed, also worked with Kubrick on The Killing. Amazingly, he's still alive, 93 years old, enemy of the show. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that was actually one question that I I even had. Uh, Like, So this would have been years before people started saturating colour, do you think black and white, okay, to put it another way, do you think color and a bit more gore would have added or detracted from the film? I'll be honest, when I was watching the battlefield scene, I kind of got a feeling of like, was 1917 really necessary? I genuinely felt at the time, I was like, huh? the, way that Kubrick, the way that Kubrick shot that battle... Even though yeah. it's in it's in black and white and it's it's a big field somewhere outside Munich where he set up six cameras. It's, it's five thousand square yards of a field split into six different sections. He had different cameras pointed at different people. They got hundreds of local German extras who all had numbers and different zones were numbered and they were supposed to die in their specific zone. Like just watching that, I thought yeah. I felt like, oh, this because I'd never seen this before, I was like, oh this like really takes away from 1917 for me. I, I like, I'll disagree with you on the first. specific wording on that. Kubrick did it first, but at this, I do think there's two or three shots in 1917 that are very difficult to detract from in their scope. They're just amazing. But I don't think you mean Pats like people going over the top, etc. Actually, like it's different stuff. In the lead up to the final battle, there's this one shot where they turn out of the forest, and you can just see an expanse before them. And there's you're just wa- looking at it, going, "I mean, there's no way they didn't build that that this set that I'm looking at right now." And particularly, yeah, yeah that over the top sequence is is amazing as well. But I mean, this over the top sequence is is yeah it's it's completely thrilling as well the ground is t- it's, it's otherworldly the ground 
in, in it. I was it, it was actually one of the things that I noted uh, when watching a Quiet Place this week is that John Krasinski. I mean, like this will go down in history as his first movie. I think it's his, it's actually his third movie, but the other two were un- insignificant. Like in the final sequence, how he uses vast spaces to contain action, let alone at night, is just thrilling. It's amazing, and like uh, Kubrick doing much the same trick here many years before. Like we clearly feel a big space and a big piece of action happening. It's really amazing filmmaking. The film was moderately successful upon release, but hugely controversial in France, where it was banned for a time. It was banned in a number of places, especially around uh, military screening. It was was not allowed because it was all negative uh, yeah. about the French army. But one well, it, supporter it's... of the film was Winston Churchill, who said that it was a highly accurate depiction of trench warfare and the sometimes misguided workings of the military mind. I mean, that's nice to hear that because, I, I don't know, like, I like, uh, just as a figure, I like Winston Churchill. And, like, it's well enough known that he basically had to be legally forbidden from getting into the trenches during World War One. He was such an enthusiastic, like, fighter. He really, really wanted to go at it, uh, famously. So, yeah, I mean, that's cool of him to say. But, yeah, the French don't come out well out of this at all. Despite the fact that to give the like, I don't know how much you know about the First World War, Andy. I I believe it took place between 1914 and 1918, and it involved some different countries shooting each other. The French took a major battering for the rest of Europe. Just ah, but I'm sure they could. I'm non- sure they did better in the second one. <laughs> well, actually, the French were the reason that. I mean, okay. This is not the official opinion of the Call It Friendo podcast, but, I mean, if you it are is, playing is. Games, Whatever you say now, whatever you say now is the official legal position of this podcast. If you're playing games with history, the French are more to blame for the Second World War than anybody except Germany, pretty much. France uh, caused the Second World War. They really insisted on the... On the on, they really insisted on the unconditional surrender and the dirty terms for Germany, um, which famously the Versailles Treaty like uh, caused the Second World War. So, so there. Uh, I read a little bit. So, the actual story of Paths of Glory is written by Humphrey Cobb is based on uh, an incident which occurred with the French army, the Suin Corporal Affair, where they yes. executed four corporals. Their uh, sentences were commuted to hard labor. Two hours after they were executed. Good God. I, I can see how just all of that does feed into the wire of... The wire is basically about these giant institutions that are like unwieldy, hyper-powerful weapons. And if you're an individual, you just get chewed up by all the different cogs in the machine. Like The, the big picture will fuck you. Mm-hmm. And that's lar- that's largely how the wire functions, and that's how this functions, and I guess that's what people like Humphrey Cobb and David Simon, that's how they feel about the military-industrial complex, big government, etc., yeah. etc. I think it informed a lot of the casting in the film as well, to be honest, because you, ju- you, you just couldn't have like a, a, a Barry Pepper from Saving Private Ryan in this movie, or it wouldn't work. You needed to have guys that looked nothing alike, completely disparate, just combined by a uniform and a duty. 
So for the cast of this film, first of all, we've got Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax. This is the first Kirk Douglas film we've watched on the podcast, although, as mentioned, we did accuse him of rape. It wasn't us. We just passed on what Robert Downey Jr. had said, that Natalie Wood had told him or that he'd heard somewhere. It's all hearsay. Who knows? But he's excellent in this film, and you can see his magnetic film star quality here. He's got a big head, which I think is a prerequisite for any Hollywood star. He does have a bum chin, much like Ben Affleck or other noted actors have you ever wanted that have you wanted to have a dimple on your chin i do beneath all this beard kirk douglas was born in new york in 1916 as isur danielovich before later adopting the name kirk douglas he joined the united states navy in 1941 shortly after the united states entered world war ii where he served as a communications officer in anti-submarine warfare aboard uss pc-1139 he was medically discharged in 1944 for injuries sustained from the premature explosion of a depth charge basically much like many of the people, many of the cast members of this film, he saw action in the Second World War. Kirk Douglas, this was something, he had star power at the time that this film was made, and he used his clout Mm. to ensure, to go and get that $1 million from United Artists to make this story, because he'd seen war, and this was something that he wanted to say. I I think in... um, I think it was in like around 1967, around that time, he said like of all the films that he'd made, he could easily name Paths of Glory as one that 50 years later people would still be talking about. He'd say, this is this is a film, even at this point, I can say is going to be a classic long into the future. And, and he was right. I mean, I think it's a story worth telling. And lo and behold, And yeah. clearly it was of yeah, personal yeah. importance to him. Yeah, and uh, just to follow on from his point, the story, like the construction of the story is still, itself is still modern by many standards. Uh, like, it, it's not a traditional narrative structure, and that's, I mean, I suppose that's what Kubrick specialized in, but it's, it would be jarring to what a lot of people would expect from a film, particularly a war film, even an anti-war film these days. So even 60 years after this film was made, I was surprised to just to even see the like the structure of this film was kind of shocking to me as I said earlier. I didn't I didn't expect to have okay, we're doing warfare and now it's a courtroom drama. I just had no idea that that's where it was going. But anyway, into the fun part of Kirk Douglas's history. Robert Zemeckis directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt starring Kirk Douglas and his son Eric Douglas. The father and son acting duo portrayed father and son characters with Eric, a young officer in World War I, brought up on charges of cowardice by his commanding general, who is also his cold-hearted father. The reason I bring this up is because Eric Douglas is my favorite member of the Douglas family. Why? Are you familiar with Eric Douglas? He is now sadly dead, but he's the one who did stand-up comedy. No, I'm not familiar with Eric Douglas. He is responsible for probably the most famous British stand-up anecdote of all time. You don't know this? Go on. Oh, great. So, okay, I'll do the whole... Okay, I'll go into the whole thing. So, Eric was apparently not a very good stand-up comedian. Most of his material was about his family and being the black sheep. One night, he was performing at the comedy store in London and absolutely eating shit all night. At one point, he was getting heckled and he fired back, you can't do this to me, I'm Kirk Douglas's son. And then a guy in the audience stood up and went, no, I'm Kirk Douglas's son. And then another person stood up and said, no, 
I'm Kirk Douglas's son. <laughs> and then multiple people all stood up doing that. Is that a real story? Genuinely, that's from the manager of the comedy store in London at that time. Wow, that's fucking hilarious. What other cast stories have you for us? Well, just to talk very briefly about some of the less exciting... We've got less exciting stories for some of these people. We've got George McCready as Brigadier General Paul Miro. McCready was a big stage actor who did a lot of Shakespeare, which is not a surprise. I thought, personally, he was excellent as the main antagonist, I guess. Or, I I don't know if that's how you would describe him. I would say he was a bit of a cunt, I mean, yeah, he's a very moustache-twirly villain. I thought he was fantastic. I wasn't familiar with him at all. I went back through and looked at his filmography. I hadn't really seen him in anything, but yeah, apparently he was a big stage actor. But he does feel very Shakespearean, because he's from the US, but at times you feel like he's English. English. And... And he's just doing that whole acting, my dear boy. Yeah, exactly. He's very Lawrence Olivier. Next, we've got Adolphe Menjou. Menjou. Well, he's also from the US, so his name's probably, hey, Adolphe Menjou, as uh, Major General Georges Brulard, the Corps commander. Menjou was a star of both silent films and talkies. He appeared in Charlie Chaplin's 1923 film, A Woman in Paris. Uh, the most notable thing about Monju was that he was a big, big Republican and supported the HUAC trials, which was a little controversial. What were the HUAC trials? Well, the House, uh, was it Un-American, blah, 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 committee Oh, thing. the McCarthyism. Exactly, yeah. So he was anti-communist, big Republican. He got into some bitter spats with people like Catherine, uh, Catherine Hepburn. And Monju also the there's the the typical anecdote from this film about him was in one of the scenes Kubrick had done about seventeen takes and then Monju was like okay that's fine that's enough we can break for lunch and then Kubrick insisted that they do one more and Monju had like a complete breakdown just like a complete fit and then Kubrick was basically like okay so are you ready and then he just he started he just started with the next take and like Monju just kind of went with it. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. I mean, that's that whole that's that age old story um, of um, British crews and um, well, was it a British crew or was this American? I don't know because the cinematographer was German, and this was the only film that he'd worked on uh, with Kubrick. So I'm guessing he they must have taken on some local crew members. Yeah, well, they shot in Europe, no? Yeah, it was shot in Munich. Yeah, they did. They so shot the, in Frankfurt. The, the, that, yeah, Munich, rather. Uh, Munich, yeah, it's all, it's all around Munich. The, the big building where the officers are, that big palace is Schlossheim, Schlossheim Palace in Munich. And uh, yeah, they, they employed something like 500 uh, local extras who I think were former police officers or were police officers. But yeah, next up on the cast list is Joe Turkle, who played Private Pierre Arnaud. Arnaud's the prisoner who fractures his skull. Turkle is notable for being one of the only actors to appear in three Kubrick films. He was in The Killing, Paths of Glory, and The Shining. Who's he in The Shining? In The Shining, he plays a character called Lloyd. Ah, the bartender. Is that the bartender? Lloyd is the bartender, yeah. Turkle's maybe most famous role, or one of his most famous roles, is as Dr. Eldon Terrell 
the eccentric android manufacturer in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Yeah, that's right. He gets a, a harsh murdering in that. But yeah, also, he's Spoilers the bartender. for Blade Runner. Nice. Okay, well, good for him. Yeah, so that's Big Joey Turkle. Big Joey Turks. You've in always the killing, he's called, the he's called Tiny. I can't remember him from The Killing. Me neither. I don't remember anyone from that, really. Just big Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden Christensen, as he likes to be called. And our other friend, who also appears in... Oh, wait, wait. Yeah, come on. No no spoilers. Wait, wait, wait. We've got... <laughs> I've got two more to do before that that you'll, you'll enjoy. So the only woman in the film is Christiane Harlan, Harlan, who plays the German singer at the end. She met Kubrick in the process of making the film. Kubrick divorced his first wife and Kubrick and Christiane were married the next year. They remained married until his death in 1999. As a side note, their daughter Vivian Kubrick now is a supporter of the Proud Boys, QAnon and Alex Jones, claiming that her father would also have supported them if he were alive today. Well, I guess, I mean, that just vindicates everything you've been saying for months. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vivian Kubrick would like us to know that COVID is not real. Thank God for that, I say. Then what have I she's just had heavily, injected into my arm? She's heavily active online. I don't know. Is her mother still alive? I believe so, yeah. I think she is. I think Christiane Kubrick is, is still alive. Is she still devilishly attractive? Oh, yeah. She's doing great. I mean, she's... I don't know how old she is, but yeah, I'm sure she's great. Vintage. Nice. Okay, before we get to the dessert, before we get to pudding, <laughs> we've got we've got one more before that. This is of particular relevance for you, Donica, and that's Bert Fried, oh. who played Staff Sergeant Boulanger. He was the first actor to ever portray Columbo. Freed played homicide detective Lieutenant Colombo on a live 1960 television episode of the Chevy Mystery Show seven years before Peter Falk played the role and also before Thomas Mitchell portrayed the eccentric police detective on stage prior to the Falk version. So there you go. There's been at least three Columbos. And the first one was Bert I did Freed. not know that. Look at you wasting your time at uh, uh, Peter Falk statues in Budapest. Yeah. Here I thought I was a Colombo completist. Turns out I'm a fucking... uh, Oh my god, how embarrassing. I'm gonna retire. Okay, finally, dessert. We're there. We made it. We made it. Have to give (laughs) a shout-out, obviously, to the man, the legend, the one and only, maybe my favorite actor ever now. I'm not sure. I need to watch more (laughs) of his films. I do think... Going back to the previous episode where you talked about the different types of actors, Timothy Carey is firmly in the just an absolute lunatic. It's a psychopath. Does not give a shit about anything. Does not follow the rules. Can I can I just say one thing? I would say he's a strange amalgamation of the two in that he's certainly a lunatic, but he fits more into the Jack Black variety and he's getting by on being a lunatic. <laughs> the third cat- the the, that- the gener the the general lunatic category is somebody who's so good at acting that they become a lunatic, but I think he was a lunatic yeah. for different reasons. <laughs> Yeah, I've I want to see him in so I guess in these two films I've seen him in the two Kubrick ones, The Killing and Paths of Glory, he's playing Timothy Carey. There's no yeah, question. Yeah, he's so memorable. That. Like he's a hundred percent. He's playing the role of Timothy Carey. Oh, I recall when um he showed up in The Killing, just I think you and I had a big discussion about it then. We were just like, 
who on earth is this fellow? Who who is he? And where where can we see more of him? During the filming of Pass of Glory, Carrie was reportedly disruptive and tried to draw more attention to his character. Due to this behavior, a scene in which Carrie and the other actors were served a duck dinner as a final meal before execution took 57 takes to complete. Carrie then faked his own kidnapping. I think we mentioned that when we were doing the killing episode. Yeah, we did, yeah. Was that Carrie on set faked of this? his own kidnapping. Yeah, this was on this. Carrie faked his own kidnapping to generate personal publicity, which prompted Kubrick and producer James B. Harris to fire him. As a result, the film does not depict the three condemned soldiers during the battle scene, and a double was used during a scene in which a priest hears Carrie's character's confession. The scene was filmed with the doubles <laughs> back to the camera. That's mad. I mean, he's lucky it was a young guy Kubrick film and he was not so into being anally meticulous because uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think that shit would have flown later on, but my God, that's, that's some wild card stuff. Okay. Do you remember any of the old trivia? Cause I've, I've got all the, I've got all the old trivia about Carrie and I've got some new trivia. Do you remember the old trivia? No, I don't. Hit me with it. He turned down the role of Luca Brazzi in The Godfather for some pilot that went nowhere. Ah, yes. I recall that now. Tarantino auditioned him for Joe Cabot and Reservoir Dogs before opting for other psychopath Lawrence Tierney and then dedicated the film to uh, Carrie. Yes, I recall that now. And the final point was that the Beatles used his image on the original artwork for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts uh, Club Band. yes. Him from the killing. Now, what new trivia exactly. do you have? Anything to top that? So, bringing it all back around, in 1971, Carey played a minor role as the character Bert in Ransom for a Dead Man, the movie pilot for the series Columbo, which aired on March 1st and starred Lee Grant. He later reprised that role in a Columbo episode entitled Dead Weight, which aired on October 27 and starred Eddie Albert and Suzanne Plachette. So... Carey I watched was it in with the, the other day. Columbo pilot. So he was in that. He's in that episode. You have to go back and watch wow. it. I mean, it looks like Columbo is becoming the new Zardos. <laughs> it is. Columbo is the TV Zardos. Okay, that's good trivia. And uh, Carey is is good fodder. I'd like to get a t-shirt okay. with his face on it. I might do that. Definitely. He's got a good face. Uh, okay, next is a film that we definitely need to watch. He wrote and directed a film in 1962 called The World's Greatest Sinner, scored by Frank Zappa. Apparently, Scorsese is a big fan, big supporter of the film. However, Frank Zappa described it as the world's worst movie. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's horrible. Anything with people experimenting with cinema back then, like I've watched everything except for the last movie, that Dennis Hopper thing about cargo cults in South America. But I mean, I've watched a lot of experimental shite that was doing the underground run back then, and it's just not entertaining. I'd give it a go because Carrie, it just seems like such an oddball. But um, And plus, we need to complete this, don't we? Yeah, I want to see. I will watch any uh, Carrie film. Absolutely. So, Kerry was from uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. His uncles, Sylvester Agoglia and Fiori Fury Agoglia, were associates of Al Capone. Nice. I think, like, basically, Timothy Kerry has the face of, so like, he's got Untouchable's face. 
that's what he looks like he should be in. I think that's how I felt when I watched The Killing first time. I was like, this guy just looks like he's from another time period. He's got a face that can yeah. that can travel through time. The man with yeah, the time traveling face. I'm actually like, yeah, him playing Luca Brazzi matches like is a good way to sync it up in your head because if you think of the guy who played Luca Brazzi, that guy that guy looks like a, a hardened criminal, you know. Right, he's got mafia hitman face. So there are some mm. good uh, Timothy Carey videos on YouTube. I'll put a couple in the show notes. One of them I watched is a Q&A after a screening of a film that Carey appeared in, and it's James Elroy, the author, talking to uh, a film critic, I think, from San Francisco or somewhere, telling stories about Carey just being an absolute fucking psycho. Just be like, uh, and like oh, a total wow. fuck-up. It's very it's very reminiscent of the the Lawrence Tierney stuff we were talking about before. So I'll stick some of those. And there one of the one of the videos Dude, is yeah. uh, is an interview with Timothy Carey and him yeah, and, talking and about Elroy some of his experiences. An interesting talker as well. Yeah. So moving into the plot, the film begins with a voiceover describing the trench warfare situation of World War One up to nineteen sixteen. In a chateau, General Georges Brulard, a member of the French general staff, asks his subordinate, the ambitious General Miro, to take a well-defended German position called the Ant Hill. Miro initially refuses, citing the impossibility of success. But when Brulard mentions a potential promotion, Miro quickly convinces himself the attack will succeed. Yeah, this has the wire all over it, doesn't it? Just uh, yeah, that kind of thing. Rolls down Get- hill. Yeah, get those murder rates down. We'll see what we can do for you around in City Hall. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. immediately see where David Simon would have taken inspiration from this film. It's extremely political. It's all of the backroom deals. There, there's a lot that has been said about the fact that the the uh, German position that they were trying to take is called the anthill, just of how meaningless it was. And they are willing to, in this scene... The general uh, explains that they're going to sacrifice like uh, more than fifty percent of their troops doing this. They're gonna. They even talked about bombing their own troops, like laying down a kind of, like a fire over the position that their troops will be heading through. Yeah, it's a funny old scene as well because they're in this big, gigantic palatial room, and they keep flitting back and forth between background and foreground and dancing around each other almost. I mean, I. Like, I'm a highbrow film snob, and uh, I couldn't figure out something pretentious to say about the way he shot it, but I'm sure there is something pretentious to be said if you work hard enough. I think the, in a, I'll, I come at these things from a, a... Most of my pretension is, is in other areas. It's not about, like, the aspects of how cameras work and, and camera placement and things like that. I think the biggest like compliment I can pay it is me watching it in 2021. I was like, fucking hell, this looks amazing. This looks great. Yeah, it does look amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's Definitely from 1957. Does. And as me, as, a, as I said, a person who doesn't particularly like black and white films, I was just like, fucking hell, this looks so good. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you there. Miro proceeds to walk through the trenches, asking several soldiers, ready to kill more Germans. He throws a private out of the regiment for showing signs of shell shock. Miro leaves the detailed planning of the attack to Colonel Dax of the 701st Regiment, despite Dax's protest that the only result of the attack will be to weaken the French army with heavy losses for no benefit. Well, that walk through the trenches like uh, sets up you know, what we're in for visually. Uh, the only other um, 
World War One film I have to compare it to from the era or before is I've have you ever seen All Quiet on the Western Front? No, I but I've seen that mentioned as a similar anti war film, but like a bit of a cop out compared to how Pass the Glory comes out. Well, yeah, as David Simon mentions in his intro to that book, it's the stoicism of it that lets it down, um, like which uh, shows the troops united in a way. And actually, many war movies do this. They show like it's not about the issue, but it's about uh, the man standing next to you. Whereas in World War One, I, I mean, well, that said, that Peter Jackson documentary would certainly argue against this. There, it looks like the boys are having a great old time compared to like the only other film about this time that I have seen all quiet on the Western front, the trench scenes in this are much dirtier and like they just feel more earthy, more real, even if they are shot in black and white Um, and all quiet on the Western front is shot in black and white as well, obviously. But I don't know. These just feel better and they feel real. And also I think, yeah, I am down down to the casting of the actors, like um, this Ponce uh, trips and through the trenches just feels aristocratic compared to much of the troops who don't necessarily feel generically, you know, peasant, but uh, they, you know, they feel ambiguously so, like just they're all different and they're from different warps of life, whereas this guy feels just totally aristocratic. Yeah, he seems like a bit of a knob. Yes. And that is borne out over the course of the film. Prior to the attack, a drunken lieutenant named Roger, leading a nighttime scouting mission, sends one of his two men ahead. Overcome by fear while waiting for the man's return, Roger lobs a grenade for some reason and retreats. Corporal Paris, the other soldier on the mission, finds the body of the scout who's been killed by the grenade and confronts Roger. Roger denies any wrongdoing and falsifies his report to Colonel Dax. Even like having seen it a few times, I was watching this going, uh, what is this to do with anything? Of course, it, it, the setup gets payoff later. Yeah, at the time, because I, I still had no idea what the film was about. I didn't realize it was going to become a courtroom drama, but everything is paid off, definitely, 100%. Uh, the thing that I guess, uh, the thing I noticed about it, I felt that the, the actor who plays Roger, he's clearly drunk on uh, duty, but he's just he was close edging into the kind of fat baddie trope he wasn't quite fat enough (laughs) he was edging into like the (laughs) the next morning the attack on the anthill is a failure dax leads the first wave of soldiers over the top into no man's land under heavy fire none of the men reach the german trenches and b company refuses to leave their own trench after seeing the first wave sustain heavy casualties miro enraged orders his artillery to open fire on them to force them onto the battlefield the artillery commander refuses to fire without written confirmation of the order meanwhile dax returns to the trenches and tries to rally b company to join the battle but as he climbs out of the trench the body of a dead french soldier knocks him down yeah that sequence is amazing I mean, it's just incredible to watch. I was kind of shocked watching it. I guess I was shocked of seeing the artillery commander refusing to fire. For some reason, maybe because it's set in the First World War, I was just like, there's no way people refuse to carry out orders. They get fucking shot. (laughs) I mean, you could do, yeah, for sure. But, I mean, there are examples of this. For anybody who wishes to learn more about the Second World War, I would not recommend any book. Uh, listen to or the Dan first, The First Carlin's, World War or the Second World War? Oh, sorry, The First World War. Listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History uh, series, uh, The Countdown to Armageddon. 
which is a six-parter about the First World War, which covers much of it in detail and features some decisions like that where people just refuse to fire on their own troops. At a meeting with Brulard and Dax to deflect blame for the attack's failure, Miro decides to court-martial 100 of the soldiers for cowardice. Brulard <laughs> persuades him to reduce the number to three, one from each company. Following the meeting, Miro and Brulard encounter the artillery commander who defied Miro's illegal order to fire on his own men during the attack. Miro recommends the artillery officer be transferred in order to cover up his crime. Corporal Paris is chosen because his commanding officer, Roger, was a cunt and wishes to keep him from testifying about Roger's actions in the scouting mission. Private Farrell, who is played by a little actor called Timothy Carey, is picked by his commanding <laughs> officer because he's a social undesirable. The last man, Private Arno, is chosen the one assassination I can agree with. <laughs> despite having been cited for bravery twice previously. I think they didn't pick Private Farrell. They picked Timothy Carey to be executed. Yeah. <laughs> They certainly did, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the few. That's one of that. It, not one of the few. That's the only time I'm on board with our French general perusing through the trenches. Because when he encounters Kerry, he's he kind of like he he talks to him a little <laughs> bit, but mainly his eyes say, "What the fuck are you?" <laughs> as soon as what are you as doing soon here? as I saw Timothy Kerry in that scene when the when the when the general's walking through the trench, I just immediately burst out laughing because he's doing so much. That's the insanity yeah, yeah. of Timothy Carey is like he's you can't stop looking at him because he's he's one of those actors who's doing things like he starts playing with his fingers or he's like adjusting his hat. He's doing everything to focus the viewer's attention on him. He must be, you know, and he actually, I mean, the guy was a madman. He actually he gets a big laugh in a in an upcoming scene for me anyway. Go on. I, I laughed all the way. Anytime he was on screen, I was laughing. Literally yeah, yeah, everything yeah, yeah, he yeah, did made me laugh. Dax, who was a criminal defense lawyer in civilian life, volunteers to defend the men at their court-martial. The trial, however, is a farce. There's no formal written indictment, a court stenographer is not present, and the court refuses to admit evidence that would support acquittal. In his closing statement, Dax denounces the proceedings. Gentlemen of the court, to find these men guilty would be a crime to haunt each of you till the day you die. Nonetheless, the three are sentenced to death. And the boys are not bothered that's another thing like similarly to how i said watching 90 watching this and then thinking about 1917 that film seemed less impressive again watching this i was like well a few good men is less impressive now as well <laughs> i'm finally filling in gaps of, <laughs> yeah of, you know of like hugely in, influential films and i'm like i only i know the one that came later i thought it was all aaron sorkin yes but I'm going to step in on A Few Good Men's behalf here. That film is awesome, and I would watch it again in a second. I would actually quite like to watch it right now. <laughs> that yeah. Predator it's, it's, from last week, I want to watch Predator. I want to watch A Few Good Men. Yeah, yeah. It's, and also, I've been thinking a lot about The Fugitive recently, so I feel like watching that again soon, too. The night before the execution, Dax confronts Brulard at a ball with sworn statements by witnesses attesting to Miro's order to shell his own trenches in an attempt to blackmail the general staff into sparing the three men. Brulard takes the statements but briskly dismisses Dax. I mean, it, this is one of those sta those scenes that makes me, like, for all uh, my hatred of uh, this class of people, God damn it looks fun being an aristocrat, doesn't it? 
this scene feels very uh, The Wire as well. I could see this playing out in the back room. Yeah, good point, actually. Actually reminds me of when um, McNulty goes to meet Karkitty's campaign manager at a ball kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's kind of, he's he's not ingratiated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point, actually. The next morning, the three men are taken out to be shot by firing squad. Dax, suspecting Roger for his nomination of Paris, forces Roger to lead the executions. While a sobbing for all is blindfolded, Paris refuses Roger's offer of a blindfold and reacts ambiguously to Roger's meek apology. Arnaud, meanwhile, is so badly injured after having started a fight in prison that he must be carried out in a stretcher and tied to the post. All three men are executed. Following the executions, Brulard breakfasts with the gloating Miro. Brulard reveals he has invited Dax to attend and tells Miro that he will be investigated for the order to fire on his own men. Miro storms out, protesting that he has been made a scapegoat. Brulard then blithely offers Miro's command to Dax, assuming that Dax's attempts to stop the executions were a ploy to gain Miro's job. Discovering that Dax uh, was in fact sincere, Brulard rebukes him for his idealism while the disgusted Dax calls Brulard a degenerate, sadistic old man. Yeah, that that that's a very interesting turn of events. Actually, to be honest, like mainly mainly just because I'd seen it all before, I, it, perhaps it uh, underwhelmed me a little this time. But just thinking back on it now, and you discussing all the various plot twists, they're all very interesting and very David Simon stuff. Particularly that, like yeah, that uh, where uh, like the general or whatever his name is just said, "What? Oh, what? You weren't being a conniving old fart like me? Shame on you!" Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, it's uh, we've seen that play out on multiple <laughs> episodes of The Wire with different characters. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, Kirk Douglas's character stand up so so strongly for his beliefs. After the execution, some of Dax's soldiers are carousing at an inn. They become more subdued as they listen to a captive German girl sing a sentimental folk song. Dax decides to leave without informing the men that they have been ordered to return to the front. His face hardens as he returns to his quarters. This is the only part of the film that is not in the novel. This was added by Kubrick. Yeah, to kind of put a sort of a humane face on proceedings, I suppose, and not just... I mean, it kind of does add something as well, because it gives the men generally a moment of not just being mindless chattel, because, well, first of all, when the German girl is uh, introduced, of course, they howl like apes, much like the... um, Burmese guards of Rambo 4 fame. (laughs) But, uh, you know, (laughs) yeah. Then uh, instead of saying, "Uh, let's rape this lady, they say, oh, look at her and listen to that and remember when we used to be human, Uh, which is nice. It's a good scene. Then as Kirk Douglas is about to walk away, the score of the film kind of um, swoops in and takes over the folk song. It's nice. So overall, I really, really enjoyed this film. I will watch this again eventually one day. I would like to. I think it is a great film. I think it's extremely powerful. I think it holds up very, very well. And it just cements to me the fact that Stanley Kubrick was a genius. A film from 1957 felt fresh to me. And it's, it's up there with The Killing and Rafifi as black and white films from the 50s that I really enjoyed. (laughs) Well, sooner or later, you're going to have to watch Casablanca again, my friend. I have seen Casablanca, so at least there's that. I said again. 
So the criteria for this week was to pick a film noir and looking through the Wikipedia article on film noir, that's how I live my life, and its various spin-offs and subgenres, I found that I'd seen a fair few of them post-1950, at least. In the end, I decided to go for a film based on a novel by Raymond Chandler, directed by Robert Altman and starring Elliot Gould. It's 1973's The Long Goodbye. Andy, my catchphrase on this show is going to persevere. I hope you win. I love that movie. I genuinely love that movie. Okay, well, mine... Well, to be fair, even if I win, mine is so renowned it can't possibly be disappointing. I really mean that, particularly with the director, those involved in it, everything. I have never seen, and have been intended to for the longest time to see... Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder's film. Oh, so that's what okay. I'm putting up for the toss. Nice, I like it. I've seen that. I've seen the musical of Sunset Boulevard as well. I go to the conventions. After I leave the Lolita convention, I go to the Sunset Boulevard convention. Nice. Like so you skip between uh, prepubescent uh, girls and uh, old dead ladies. There's nothing in the middle as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> All right, get your coin out for the lads. Your options are 10 cent or person with flowing hair. Flowing hair, all the way. It is 10 cent. We are watching The Long Goodbye. I'm looking forward to it. I love that movie. I love it. Uh, Okay, well, that's all from both of us then. Uh, What about the criteria? Uh, Okay, I'm going to go with uh, science fiction. That's what we're going to be watching. Nice. That's a change of pace. I, I have probably seen enough warfare for now. Maybe some kind yes, of Star we'll get back War to, uh, would be good, though. A Star War would be good. Oh, my God. There's a very crucial Star War that I haven't seen. That's insane. How can I have, I have, you haven't seen? I haven't seen The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, it's shite. <laughs> It's probably just as well. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. I've heard Please that. Please don't make right, us listen, watch that. I got to go. You got to go. I love you. Yep. I love you too. Bye.